Entonces voy a hablar tanto en inglés como en español para que hasta que llegue a Claudia para que puedan entender. Va a haber una meditación de 10 minutos aproximadamente y después voy a dar una plática de aproximadamente media hora y habrá tiempo para preguntas y respuestas. Así que en este momento vamos a meditar. You can go ahead and begin settling into your meditation posture. And I like to begin with just a bit of movement. Empezando por conseguir tu postura. A mí me gusta empezar con un poquito de movimiento. Y sintiendo el peso del cuerpo en tu asiento. It's feeling the sense of the weight of the body on your seat. Relaxing the belly and allowing the body to settle right here, right now. Soltando la barriga para que el cuerpo puede asentarse aquí y ahora.
y colocando la mente en las sensaciones de la respiración, respirando el cuerpo. Resting the mind on the sensations of the breath, breathing the body.
Beautiful. So just allow me a moment to make another announcement here in Spanish. Entonces, eh, le mandé una nota a, a Claudia, pero no sé si uh, ella está disponible en este momento. Así que lo siento porque parece que no va a haber interpretación simultánea hoy. Están muy bienvenidas, o sea, son muy bienvenidas para quedarse si quieren. O también pueden, puede ser que yo o Claudia después haga una, una copia, o sea, una versión con interpretación y lo montamos en el YouTube, ¿ok? Para que, para que puedan experimentar la enseñanza de hoy. Pero en este momento voy a cambiar a solamente en, en inglés. Y lo siento porque no, no sé qué pasó con Claudia, pero voy a hablar con ella para asegurar de que va a estar aquí en el futuro. Okay. So, uh, as I was saying, there's not going to, our interpreter isn't here today. And so we'll, uh, we're going to do some interpretation later and I'm going to switch now to English only for the Dhamma talk. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa Namo tassa bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambhutasa Bhutang Tamang Sanghang Namasami So as I think uh, some of you know, I'm here in London, England, since about 10 days ago or so now, uh, here for uh, a course of study, academic study of the history and preservation of Buddhist heritage. And uh, it's, it's all about art and it's it's wonderful. It's wonderful to be here in London, and it's very it's very particularly uh, interesting and uplifting for me to be really experiencing the ways that Buddhism has been expressed non-verbally. Buddhism being expressed in the world without words, but in images of various sorts, uh, through sculpture, through paintings. Tankas, um, yeah, all sorts of ways, different ritual items, um, actual buildings, architecture, and so on. And um, and learning learning about um, that expression and and how different people have studied and interacted with that expression. 
but also learning something about more contemporary painting. And so I was, uh, I'm, I started reading, with, and this is not part of my required reading, but just for fun. <laughs> I started reading this book called Vincent van Gogh, A Life in Letters. And it's, uh, it's about his letters to family and friends of his life because he had a very difficult life, but he also, in a very short period of time, had a very interesting expression, such an interesting visual expression that uh, has inspired a lot of people. And, and I'm just getting started with the book, but there's this first letter in this book that is a letter from him to his brother, Theo. And he says, he's talking about how he sees something of Rembrandt in Shakespeare. And... Um, And then he goes on to say, but one has to learn to read. So I'm quoting now from his letter. But one has to learn to read. One has to learn to see and learn to live. And I really appreciate this, this admonition. One has to learn to see. Hmm? You know, for an artist, as somebody who has been dabbling in that for an, a few years now, several years now, and and uh, also doing this study, you know, for an artist, when they speak about learning how to see, you know, there is learning to see different colors, what we call values, or learning to see the shadow and the light, what we call contrast, or learning to see different uh, shapes of things rather than interpreting the way that we see our things, but actually observing the shapes within them, whether you're going to try to capture that in a realistic way or whether you're going to capture that in a more smoothed way, which we would call an abstraction. So there are all these ways that artists learn how to see, which sounds a little funny perhaps initially because course, seeing happens, right? You think, oh, I have been seeing since day one, right? Or maybe even before that, we don't know what you might have been seeing in the womb. But there's seeing, there's seeing that just happens. But then there is this experience of seeing that can take various forms and various perspectives. And Similarly, in the Dhamma, similarly in the Dhamma, I think that that um, we are asked to learn how to see, to learn how to see the world in new ways, in ways that perhaps we've never done before, actually, to be open and curious about a way of seeing both literal and figuratively, a way of seeing that is different. That is uh, more penetrating, more true to the principles that are at work. And that takes some training. It takes some practice. It takes... It takes some effort, actually, to learn how to see. 
And in particular, one of the aspects that I want to point out is something about seeing, um, seeing with some nuance, you could say, or seeing more than one thing. And so in order to, uh, to do that, I want to share an image with you. So you have to give me one second. Usually I wouldn't do this because we would have a group of both people in person and people who were, uh, who were online. But since we're here all online, then I can show you this image that I wanted to share with you. Give me one second here. And um, it is about being able to see. Mm. More than one side of things. Hmm. Well, I had it ready for you, and now I'm not seeing it where I thought it was going to be. So give me one more second, and I will try to find it. Oh, here it is. Okay, great. So then I will share my screen with you, and you can see. This is a classical image. Some of you may be familiar with this. Some of you are not. This is a, a picture. And, and so this is a, a drawing, it was, from, it was originally from a postcard, a German postcard back in the 1880s, a long time ago. And, uh, and then it was recaptured uh, or, or uh, reimagined, you could say, by a cartoonist, a British cartoonist named William Eli Hill. And what you might see is you might see an old lady in this image. You might see an old woman with a scarf. So this is her scarf. I think y'all can see my pointer here. This is her scarf. And she's got like some kind of furry shawl on or some kind of furry collar. And this is her hair. And this is her eye and her mouth and her nose. But if you look again, you might see a young woman and exactly without changing anything, right? Exactly the same set of black and white, just black and white lines. And you might see a young woman. This is still her hair. But this here is her eyelash over here. And this is her ear, not the eye. And this is her chin. And this is like a little like a little velvet collar or some kind of collar that she has on. You see? Two images in the one. So I show this as a way of talking about what it is that the Dhamma is asking us to do in terms of seeing. The Dhamma is asking us to see not just the content of what's in front of us, but also the, what principles are being expressed there. 
So we can we can experience the content and begin to understand the content of our lives. What is what are the specific items, the elements, the people, the feelings, the thoughts? We can look at all of these types of things and begin to understand them, begin to understand them in terms of patterns or begin to understand them in terms of how they work together, how the body and the mind, for example, work together. This is one of the ways that we begin to see our lives in accordance with the Dhamma. But then we also can see that there are other things that are being expressed. There are these principles like impermanence or like interdependence that are being expressed right there in the same set of circumstances. Not some here and some there, but rather across everything. They are principles that are completely pervasive throughout all things. And that is another kind of seeing. To begin to be willing, actually, because many times we have a resistance to seeing certain kinds of principles at work in our lives. A resistance to change or a resistance to that kind of interdependence that means that we don't have the control that we'd like to have or we don't have the influence even that we'd like to have or the independence that we might like to have. And then there is another kind of seeing as well that I think the Dhamma asks us to do. And that is to see what is not present. And we can see examples of this in art as well. You can see what is not present by seeing what is present. And sometimes that seems like a koan or it seems like a strange kind of statement. But I'll show you an example, another picture, uh, because I think it's, it's quite intuitive, actually, if you if you have an example to go by. So I'm going to bring up another image, which I do happen to have handy. <laughs> if, there we go. The computer will cooperate. And we'll share screen again and have a look at one more image. So I hope everybody can see that. So we have the, over here, this is a beautiful piece that is actually on display in Washington, D.C. at the Smithsonian Museum, National Asian Museum. And, uh, and it's a very small piece. You can see here, 21.9 centimeters high. So, you know, it's not that big. Um, and it's on display in a room with a number of different Buddhist images. But this is actually not a Buddhist image. This is from the Jain tradition. So the Jains were a uh, different type of seekers and ascetics uh, and contemporaries of the Buddha. And, and, uh, and they had 
an idea that a person who had completely gone beyond, there was, excuse me, there was the possibility for a person to go completely beyond comma. And those people were called the Gina. You can see the word for it right here, the Ginas or the victors. And their way of thinking about how that happens is quite different than the way that we might talk about it in Buddhism. But I really enjoy this depiction. And I, I would take a picture of it oftentimes when I would go to the museum. Because you can see here that what this is, is a cutout. It's a metal, it's a little metal shrine. And it's got these lovely, very intricate uh, things happening here at the top. But then you have this piece in the center, and this is the depiction of the Gina, the victor, the one who has completed their path. And it's depict it is a depiction of just a blank space that is indicated by this cutout of this person, this person-sized shape. Hmm? So it's very intuitive. You immediately, you can look at it and see, ah, yes, that's what the depiction is here. The depiction is, um, in a sense, the absence of a person. So we can do the same thing. We do this in our practice, ideally. We can look at conditioned existence, and we can, by studying and experiencing conditioned existence, begin to understand what is present and also what is not present. So we can uh, sometimes, a way to learn different types of seeing is to have a metaphor or to have uh, uh, some kind of moment where there's a shift in your perception. And so we see a lot of stories about this in the suttas. See many, many stories about this in the suttas. I'll tell you, uh, so I've shared sometimes a story about uh, when I was on retreat at Aloka Vihara in Northern California, not that long ago, maybe four years ago. I was on retreat on sol solitary retreat, which happens in the winter, means I was out at this little uh, yurt, this kind of prefabricated round single room uh, huts that we used in the forest for our solitary meditation retreats. And so I was sitting out there and there's a little deck built around the yurt so that you could climb the steps and, and get up there. And, and uh, so I was sitting there on the deck having my tea after lunch and, um, and I was looking out at this pine tree. It's not any specific, was it a pine or an oak? Maybe it's an oak. I'm looking at a tree. <laughs> and, and it's not any particular kind of tree. It just happened to be the closest tree to the edge of the deck there. Yeah. And so I'm looking at the tree and it's a cloudy day. And then what happened was that there was a break in the clouds. And so suddenly it went from being a very cloudy overcast day to being uh, sunny. And when the sun came out, then the tree had a shadow, was casting a shadow on the ground. But then again, the clouds covered over 
and it became overcast again very quickly, right? This is happening just in a matter of a few minutes. The clouds again were closed. They covered up the sky. They covered up the sun, and it was an overcast day again. And then, oh, so overcast that there wasn't a shadow anymore from the tree. I think it was an oak, a big one. It was a big round thing. <laughs> it shows how much I know about botany <laughs> or any kind of gardening. Um, thank goodness for Ayahimsa, who was the specialist in that regard. So anyway, I noticed that sometimes there was shadow and sometimes there was not. And it was so interesting to me. It was like, oh, right. So the shadow is only present when there is enough sunshine, enough light for that. The tree is necessary. It's the shadow of the tree, actually, right? The shadow belongs to the tree. But the light, the absence or the presence of the sunlight is what makes it possible. So this is that this is that kind of specific conditionality, or this is that way of being able to observe what are the conditions that are present and what are the things that are absent. In that case, it was quite easy, right? Because from I had first the example of no shadow, and then a moment of shadow, and then a moment again of no shadow. So it was very easy to compare the absence of the thing. And I thought to myself, oh, this is like the self. That shadow is like the sense of self. When there are certain conditions in our minds, certain ways that we are relating to things, these particular things, these five aspects of body and mind that we call the five aggregates, then there is that shadow that is produced, that sense of self. So we can see the, the things that are absent just as much as the things that are present. And and other examples of of seeing in ways that led to some insight, the most profound insight, in fact, we have, for example, the the poem from Patachara, Venerable Terry Patachara. She was one of the awakened women of the Buddha's time. She had actually many, many students. And uh, many of her students. So there's a a book of what's understood today to be the earliest collection of women's poetry ever. It's called the Terigata. It's the verses of the Teris of the elder women of the Buddha's time. And the, uh, the verses there are recorded not just from Patachara, as the teacher, as one of the venerables, but also from many of her students who were also awakened. And in her particular case, Venerable Mahateri Patachara, she speaks about, she was washing her feet and she was just observing the water, the movement of the water. 
And she talks about just looking at the movement of the water from high to low and how there was this flow. And we don't know, I, I wouldn't speculate actually on why she mentions that detail, but she does mention that detail right before she talks about, then she gets up from having washed her feet. She, she, uh, she says she restrain, restrains her mind like a thoroughbred horse. She is, she is uh, working with her mind in some way in some some way with a lot of care, a lot of capacity for observation, for knowing. And she walks into her hut and she sits down on the bed to go to sleep. And as she is putting out the lamp, she says, all suffering fell away. She says the delusion in her mind went out like the flame of the lamp. And so, again, she doesn't draw a specific line. But for her, that observation of the water and then observation of the mind, and then observation of the lamp. She's talking about very specific moments of what? Of mindfulness. Of mindfulness. Very specific moments. And so that is what the Dhamma is asking us to do. Mindfulness is about being alive to your life. It's that simple. It is about being alive to the world that you are experiencing. And that lived experience will show you wisdom. Wisdom as it is understood in Buddhism, wisdom, which means knowing and seeing things as they truly are, how they really work, what is actually present and what is not. And so in a sense, this is a very hopeful, very hopeful teaching that has come down to us because it says that you have exactly what you need. You have the tools, you have all of the components or bringing forth that wisdom. It couldn't possibly be kept from you. Even by you yourself, you yourself could not keep it from you. If you are just willing, 
to be alive to your world. If you are just willing to see, to really see, to learn to see. So thank you. That's my talk for today. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.